Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It was such a charged kind of aloneness at that time because, yeah, as you say, I had I had just left the wrong career, which was law. I had just left the wrong relationship that I had been in for the previous seven years. And I was now out there floating around by myself in this apartment, not knowing what my work was going to be or whether and when I would find love again. But it was a very liminal type of time, you know, like an in-between moments type of time. But it was also like a, a beautifully charged time it wasn't like sad or scary it was like really it was sort of like exciting hi and welcome to alonement the podcast about time alone and why it matters i'm francesca specter host of this podcast and author of alonement a book based on this very show i'm also a reformed extreme extrovert who a few years ago, discovered the life-changing benefits of spending time alone. Each week, I interview someone I'm curious about to discover what solo time means to them. In every conversation, we celebrate the unique benefits of time spent alone, regardless of your age, life stage, or relationship status. Because when alone time isn't lonely, it's alonement. You know what? I've been waiting a while to say this. Welcome back to season eight of Alonement, my podcast about alone time and why it matters. This one has taken a little bit longer to put together and you know what? I've been itching to get it out and I think that it's all the bigger and better for it. So thank you for your patience and uh, yeah, I I hope that you're going to enjoy this season kicking off with, well, one hell of a guest To begin this episode, and you will appreciate it was worth the wait, I have one of the most all-time requested guests on this show, Susan Kane. Susan is known as the rock star of the introvert world. Her 2012 book, Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, is still topping the New York bestseller list, while her follow-up book, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole, recently joined it there a decade later. In this conversation, we discuss the idea of free trait theory, the idea that you can pretend to have qualities like, for instance, extroversion in certain scenarios. We also talk about the joy of alone togetherness, the bittersweetness of both alone time and being single, 
and the relationship between alone time and spirituality. Oh, and she accidentally becomes my dating guru for a bit at the end, which was an unexpected direction, but we'll get there later. Susan describes herself as a happy melancholic. And after listening to this conversation, you probably understand what she means by that. She's a highly individual thinker and you come away, well, I came away at least, considering everything from solitude to sad songs with a newfound appreciation. I loved talking to her and I'm pinching myself that I get to share this episode with you all. This season is brought to you by West Lab, the UK's number one trusted bath salts brand. Their best-selling Dead Sea bath salt range contains minerals that come from the famous waters themselves. Fun fact, it's actually a lake, not a sea, that's found in the lowest point of the earth and was the world's first spa, visited by Cleopatra herself. Dead Sea Salt is a skin hero containing a unique blend of magnesium, calcium and potassium, which is brilliant for protecting and repairing your skin barrier and managing conditions like eczema, psoriasis, acne and sensitive skin, together with soothing any aching muscles. I'm also kind of in love with magnesium for its mood balancing qualities. It's nice to think that your mind and body are being looked after while you're soaking there in the tub. West Lab Dead Sea Bath Salts are vegan, cruelty-free and suitable for the whole family. Use the code ALONEMENT15 for 15% off when you spend £10 or more. T's and C's in the show notes. Susan, as I mentioned in my introduction, you're one of my most requested guests on this show. You're famously an introvert doing a very extroverted activity of promoting yet another best-selling book. How has it been this time around compared to when Quiet came out? Ah, well, thank you so much for having me. Gosh, how has it been? I would say always when I go into what I think of as publicity mode, there's always, there's always a sense of like having to propel myself outward from where I am naturally supposed to be. And once I'm in that outward space, I get used to it and I start to enjoy it. But there's always this feeling of like, okay, I'll be glad to go back into my natural uh, home when this is done. And and I think that's a really useful way to think about it because all of us in our lives have to go into those outward spaces all the time, uh, whether we want to or not. I, I know that you're an extrovert. So for you, that's more of a natural place to be. It's a funny thing as an introverted writer, because I write about introversion, um, when I do book tours and things like that, I always have, you know, all these people kind of around sort of fussing around me and saying, are you sure this is okay? Is this too much? And I always think, you know what? All, almost all of your writers need this. Like, I'm not the only one. Um, I'm just the one who happens to talk about it. Absolutely. And I think that, I mean, there was a study that came out. I think it was an Israeli study a couple of years ago, which actually showed that we all benefit from some degree of solitude, you know, introvert or extrovert. So I suppose in a way, you're identifying something that in little and large ways is also quite universal. Because even, I mean, even speaking as an extrovert who loves parties, there are times I want to go and hide away as well in certain social scenarios. Particularly for me, it's group fun. I hate anything that's a kind of contrived group fun situation, like a sort of escape room or something like that. But do you think that actually maybe you've had extroverts in your life come to you and say maybe they you've identified, you've tapped into something that they weren't quite realizing 
they need it as well. Oh, yes. I hear that all the time from people. And I saw it actually, especially during the early days of the pandemic, um, when people were still in lockdown mode, a lot of extroverted friends saying to me, you know what, I'm realizing that the life that I had before was too much even for me. Um, you know, and that there are aspects of this new quiet that I'm appreciating and wanting to, to, to continue even when this lockdown situation stops. So I do hear that a lot from people, um, and from extroverts, just because the nature of our world, it's so always on in a way that humans were never designed to be. We were never meant to be that way. Um, and then at the same time, I hear from a lot of extroverts who will say, that they would like to learn how to be more comfortable in solitude the way that you are. Um, they might, one of my best friends in the world, her name is Judith. We've been really close since college. Um, and she's very extroverted. She's very social. She wants to be talking all the time. And when I was working on quiet, I went to visit her out in California for a while. Um, and I was staying at her house and I would go to the local Starbucks to like work on my book um, and, and I would be there for like 25 minutes and then she would show up and be like, are you done yet? Like, can, can we talk now? I think there's something of like, oh, many extroverts will say to me, well, I would love to be able to have the pleasure of being able to do yoga or meditation or just sit still without feeling kind of a craving to be, to go outward. Um, a lot of the cultural discussion that we have tends to be about the adjustments that introverts need to make in order to thrive in our extroverted world. But I think it really goes both ways. I think that all of us need to learn to make adjustments, you know, to find a, a greater sense of balance. I really like how you say that, uh, not, not least because it really taps into the premise of what I suspected for, for my book and, and what then I came to explore. So the idea, for instance, that you can develop these things called solitude skills. So it's a researcher in um, in the US, Virginia Thomas. She's looked into these particularly, these solitude skills that you can develop to be more comfortable in your own company. And they are things like developing emotional regulation through being able to journal or to meditate. And then that making you feel more comfortable to sort of decompress in your own company to then get all the nice benefits from it for instance, mm-hmm. being able to read a great book or things like that. It actually reminds me of a chapter in Quiet where you do talk about how introverts might benefit from being kind of pushed into this pseudo extroversion uh, in some in some scenarios. Uh, and you draw on something called free traits theory, which says mm-hmm. in a nutshell that we're able to adopt personality traits when it comes to the service of personal projects Uh, and I imagine for you that's public speaking for instance which you've then gone and won awards for and that is you know very typically extroverted kind of quality so in what ways do you think that as you alluded to before that extroverted people can benefit from doing the same that sort of cosplaying introversion well I mean the the whole idea of free trait theory, it, and it comes from the work of this amazing personality psychologist named Brian Little. Um, and the, the whole idea of it is that all humans have what he calls our core personal projects. And these are the people, uh, the causes, the, the work 
that we love most and really want to devote ourselves to. And the idea is that in the service of those core personal projects, we can and often must step outside of our normal comfort zone for the sake of this larger goal that we have. Um, you know, so in my case, I had this book, these books that I really care about. Um, and the only way to be able to advance those books and those ideas was to become comfortable with public speaking because that's just kind of how it goes nowadays. Um, so I had to step outside my comfort zone to get there, but, but you, but you're doing it not out of a sense of there's a deficiency in me that must be corrected. It's not that at all. It's rather here is a goal that I love and I will do what I need to do to achieve that goal. And when you do it that way, you're doing it for, with a sense that once you've achieved the goal, you get to come back and be you. So when we're talking about extroverts and alone time, I, I wouldn't really say that that's something extroverts need to do in like some, I don't know, in, in some platonic way. It's, it's rather, is there something, is, is there some goal that the person wants to achieve? Um, that they can't unless they master this skill. Um, you know, I know for many extroverts who I've spoken to, there's a feeling of like, well, I'd like to not be lonely when I don't have a ton of friends around. You know, I'd like to be able to rely more on my own company, rely more on myself. And that's a worthy goal. And so then you do what you need to do to get there. But it's not that there's anything wrong per se with, you know, one's bubbly extroversion and desire to be around people and like, you know, kind of a wonderful reaching outward socially. Like the, those are wonderful things. Nothing wrong with them. It's just, is it or, or does it or doesn't it happen to be stopping you from some other goal you'd like to achieve? Yeah. And I like that you put it that way because I think that even in the process of sort of promoting a book, representing something, you know, you're widely regarded as a thought leader. And you then, I, I imagine, you know, the world thinks in black and white. This is quite natural. Uh-huh. You almost become quite polarized, but I like that you kind of acknowledge the nuance there that, you know, actually they're, they're nice things to be both, both ways. And actually it's something that we don't necessarily need to like force ourselves to take on different qualities, but but it can be nice to enjoy that fluidity between the two. Yeah, exactly. And and yeah, so for some people, this is just a non-issue and I wouldn't make it into an issue unless it, unless you feel that you're craving something that you're not having at the moment and then there probably is a way to have it. Mm, absolutely. And then really nice to have books that give you the tools to do that. I'm I'm interested about so earlier you said that you uh you were working uh from a Starbucks which is which is interesting um because obviously I think when we talk about alone sometimes I think we envision this sort of hermit like state on a rock right it it's got to be you know it's like oh well that's not properly alone because you know you were doing you were yeah in Starbucks you're in a co-working space you're in this you're in that um but actually I think that many of us acknowledge perhaps during lockdown particularly that there's a sort of alone togetherness that can be quite comforting as well that feeling that uh, you referenced the sort of feeling of an extrovert wanting to feel that there's people around sometimes and not feeling lonely in their own company do you think we can all benefit from that 
alone togetherness sometimes and it doesn't necessarily need to be so black and white absolutely i, I and i think that that's why co-working spaces and starbucks and cafe life and all of it that's why it's always been so popular i think many many people love that state of alone together i mean i i wrote all of quiet in this amazing cafe in greenwich village where i was living at the time that drew artists and writers and professors from all over New York City would just come and hang out there. And and a lot of the time, like if you looked around, people were like this in the cafe, like inside their own heads, but very much together. I mean, there, there's something about feeling other people's energy um, in a context in which you're not compelled to be interacting. That is just incredibly comforting, inspiring, illuminating, like all of it. Um, that was actually probably what I missed most during lockdown was that. Um, and I actually think family life can sometimes be that way. Um, so like my, my husband and my two boys, they love, love, love. They're like obsessed with American football. Um, so on the weekends during the fall, they're just like in front of the TV watching football all weekend long. And just the other day they were saying to me, Oh mom, I'm sorry. This is another one of those football weekends. And I was like, no, you know, I actually find it incredibly cozy to have them like in the house doing their thing and I'm in the house doing my thing. And I still feel together, even though we're not interacting at that moment, there's an incredible preciousness to that. Mm. So yeah, I mean, to your point about nuance, I, I, I do think that we think about these things in way too black and white a way. It reminds me actually, as you're talking, um, and I, I wondered about this, uh, whether you've recreated this in your own family because in the dedication um in quiet you referenced something really beautiful how uh, with your late grandfather who um he was um he was a widower and you used to go over to his house on Saturdays which I know is the Jewish Sabbath so you sort of won't have technology or anything like that and you used to all sit and curl up and read your books together uh, and you write it was the best of both worlds you had the animal warmth of your family right next to you but you also get to roam around your adventure land inside your own head. Uh, I think it's a really beautiful description. And it's so lovely that you've then got that in your own family. That's, you know, that kind of alone together scenario, just in a different way. Yeah, yeah it's a very different way with the football games. But um, yeah, it is kind of like that. And I think that's because, I mean, it's not that our family life is always like that. We We have plenty of times where we're interacting too, or plenty of times where, you know, one person's out of the house doing one thing, one is doing another. But I do think that um, there's just something lovely about that state. And so in, in Business Suite, so it's a sort of blending together of wonderful research and expert insights, but also a memoir from yourself. And there's a time where you sort of reflect on when you were uh, age 33, you were living alone. You'd ended your uh, seven year long relationship and you were in a small rented flat by yourself without much furniture. And this was, a, you know, this was a kind of a new, I guess, a new start in your life, but also one that was possibly a little bit scary or possibly very new. Um, mm -hmm. Tell me about what the aloneness associated with that time felt like. Oh, that's such an interesting question. It was such a charged kind of aloneness at that time because yeah as you say i had i had just left the law the wrong career which was law i had just 
left the wrong relationship that I had been in for the previous seven years. And I was now, you know, kind of out there floating around by myself in this apartment, um, not knowing what my work was going to be or whether and when I would find love again. Um, and so it was a very liminal type of time, you know, like an in-between moments type of time. But it was also like a, a beautifully charged time. And I know this because still, even though that was quite a, a while ago now, still when I hear the songs that I happen to be listening to during that time, the songs take me back instantly to what that state felt like. And it wasn't, and, and so the state, it wasn't like sad or scary. It was like really, it was sort of like exciting. Um, I happened to be listening at that time to the uh, David Gray song, Sail Away. And, um, and it did feel like that. I, like I felt very, very uh, intensely as if I were on a river, you know, like floating somewhere, but, but going somewhere, going somewhere. And I, yeah, I, I do think those in-between states in which we find ourselves alone can be that way. Um, you're, you're somehow going somewhere. And at the time, that apartment that I lived in was across the street from a church, this really gorgeous, beautiful, tiny little jewel of a church that was sandwiched in between the skyscrapers of the city. Um, it was for, this church was from the 19th century, this tiny little thing. Um, and I would go there almost every day and sit there for hours and just kind of absorbing the, the beauty of, of that place. And I was very much alone and very happy. And, uh, yeah, that sense of being on a journey someplace. And I, I you know, when we're uh, comfortably ensconced in, you know, the bosom of our friends and families, that's a wonderful place to be too. But I think it has less of the sense of a river to it. Maybe it's more of the sense of having arrived at, at a place for a time. Mm -hmm. And that's wonderful in and of itself. But I think life just presents these different moments, you know, and you have to kind of lean into them, whether it's they're the river moments or the, the cozy arrival moments. Thank you for that reflection. And I think it will resonate and maybe give a sort of reframing to a lot of people who, who listen to this. And I can say quite honestly, uh, you know, myself included, I'm at an age where um, I'm 31, I live alone, I'm single, I work for myself. And there is that beautiful freedom to that. Um, but there's also that sense of being untethered. And I wonder whether it speaks to, or, you know, I, I, I believe it speaks to why Bittersweet, um, a book which celebrates what we might perceive as more negative or difficult emotions like sorrow and longing alongside times like happiness. I wonder if that's the bittersweet elements of, of your personality of that appreciation for the bittersweet that was able to enjoy or appreciate that time at the time. Because I think that's quite amazing that you were able to make that mental leap. A lot of people perhaps wouldn't be able to appreciate it while they're in it. That's really interesting. Um, and also that you talk about the idea of being untethered because I will tell you that. So 
right after um, I left my law firm and, you know, and I was in this untethered state, I started writing this memoir about leaving the wrong relationship and the wrong career all at once. And I, I wrote the memoir in prose form and I also wrote this version in sonnet form. And so that's what I was working on at that time of my life. And the, the title that I, the working title that I used for the memoir was Freefall, you know, so talk about untethered. And I, I used, I had that title partly because my mother said to me after, when this had happened, she, she's like, oh my gosh, like everything's gone upside down. You're in free fall. It, it just sort of came out of her mouth. And I was so struck by it when she said it because I partly felt that, I mean, free fall has a connotation of like danger to it, right? Like anything could happen. You're just hurtling through space. And I, so I did partly feel the danger of it, but I also felt, as I say, the, the serenity and adventure of, of being on more of like a raft floating down a river. So I felt those things simultaneously and I was trying to explore all that. But I, but I do think you're right. I, I mean, I think almost every stage of life has that kind of duality to it that bittersweetness evokes, you know, that every stage has the dangers and the adventure or, um, you know, the, the simultaneous confinement and coziness or there, there's always the simultaneous either or black, white, it, it, it's all there together at the same time. Um, and you, you said at the beginning, we live in such an unnuanced society. And I think that's really so much of our problem in dealing with almost every life stage is that we think everything is all one or all the other, when in fact, it's always been both. It's always been joy and sorrow simultaneously. You know, it's always been adventure and, and, uh, and. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Stability simultaneously. That's just kind of how it is. You know, it's it's in the way that uh, Business Suite is framed. One of the examples of what, what is Business Suite is is music, is creativity. But particularly, you reference you used to love uh, li- what were you? I'm sure you still do listening to sad songs at university, um, and you were sort of teased for this. And there's there's a wonderful accompanying playlist to your book on Spotify, which is just. I must share a lot of bittersweet traits because I was looking down and God, the Simon and Garfunkels and the Beatles and all of that. And I was like, yeah, they're kind of my favorite songs as well. I never, I probably would, would have been the same as you and not quite realized that they were seen <laughs> as kind of quote unquote depressing. But I don't know, there's something, I, don't, I guess there's something inherent about bittersweetness and creativity that I'd never quite appreciated before reading a book. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you say that because since the book came out, I have gotten so many heartfelt letters from creative people um, talking about how that is the essence of what propels their creativity. And they just kind of hadn't realized it before. Um, there was this one amazing letter from a guy, he's a, a young filmmaker in LA. Um, and he talked about how he all his life has loved that kind of music too and had had felt like that there was something vaguely embarrassing about it, um, too much tending towards depression. But the truth is that he said when he would listen to that music, he, he was always like grasping for the words to describe it. And what he would call it in his own mind was that holy feeling, like holy with an H, not WH, mm. that holy feeling. Um, and that that's what fuels his desire to create beautiful things because I mean, I think what the bittersweet state does and what that kind of music does is it puts us in the mind of the gap between the, the world as it is versus the more perfect and more beautiful world in which we all yearn to live. And we become aware of that gap which is simultaneously thrilling and sad. We have in mind, you know, like the Garden of Eden-like existence that we long for, like this shining, beautiful thing. Um, It's also sad because we're not quite there. But I think that's what makes us want to be creative, like the, the reaching for that kind of beauty, like the reaching to create something, something lasting, something beautiful, something that, that speaks of Eden, that, that's what propels the human spirit. You know, when, when, when people speak about longing to go to Mars, which is not a longing that I share, but I know some people have it. Um, like, I, I think that's what's propelling us. It's like Mars for that moment becomes a symbol of, of perfection and truth and beauty. Mm. So we all have our different symbols for that, but, but it's that state that all humans long for funny I, I suppose it's a bit how I feel about the 
yearning to spend time alone sometimes i think well you know we're told was socialized to think at least that you know we're social beings we're naturally tribal beings that word natural comes up time and time again but there's something very anti-evolutionary almost about our yearning to be alone like i wonder whether the urge to appreciate sadness and association with you know death and melancholy some it comes from the same kind of place you know i wonder if it's something that's the part of us that's the soul rather than that sort of i don't know more gratified animal instincts to be happy and hedonistic and something like that the, the holiness seems quite appropriate in that context yeah and it's funny you say that because um you know you look at all the religious traditions and um the the religious leaders who come back to the social group with their epiphanies, they come back from having gone out to a place of solitude, you know, whether it's Moses or um, Jesus or Muhammad, like they, or Buddha, they, they go off by themselves. They go off by themselves for a long time. And that's where the revelations come from. And then you look at like, well, what are those revelations? What, what are the truths that they're bringing back to the community? I mean, they're often bringing back truths of like how how to deal with the fact that human beings will suffer and human beings will die and human beings will love and they will also lose. That's really what religions are grappling with. And and that place of aloneness is the place where the grappling happens. You know, the the, the shaman living on the edge of the forest. Like that that's so all these articles and these people talking about how, you know, we're, we're evolutionarily designed to be social beings. Yes, it's true, but that's not the whole picture. I, I don't believe that's the way that that's never been the sum total of how humans live. And all you have to do is look at these ancient accounts to know that that's true. I'd never thought about it like that. Religion is so often associated with a sort of, uh, you know, communality um you know which is great in and of itself and i think in the secular world we're still trying to sort of replace that coming together of religious buildings and but actually within religious texts there's also that built-in appreciation for for solitude for aloneness and for what you can get from that yeah yeah and also a sense in all the religions that um to to dive into the state of longing and yearning which we don't like in modern day society, we think there's something, you know, dark about it or, or depressive about it or something like that. But, you know, the, the mystical sides of all the religious traditions teach that to long for the beloved, to long for the design, divine is to come ever closer to reaching it. Um, it it's, it's kind of one of the great paradoxes. So there are these states of being that you know, in modern day, like upbeat, positive psychology world, you're not supposed to dive into, but it, but it's it's spiritually impoverishing us to be told not to go there. And and one of the great things in positive psychology, I would say, it's it's actually now finally evolving. You know, it it started out very legitimately and understandably wanting to uh, be an antidote to what had been mainstream psychology that looked only at human psychosis and mental illness and, and, and dysphoria. Um, and it said, well, we should also be looking at what makes human beings thrive and flourish. So that was all great and worthy. Um, but what happened for the first few decades was that got translated into meaning, you know, therefore we should only look at 
that which is cheery, optimistic, upbeat, 100% of the time, instead of understanding that human flourishing and wisdom actually comes from engaging with the dialectic of existence, you know, the, the joy and the sorrow that constantly must coexist because loss and love constantly must coexist. That's just reality. And so like to express it and understand it, that's where the real connection and creativity comes from. And so, and so it's great. Positive psychology 2.0, I would say is heading in that direction. You have to kind of grapple for it a bit more, but there is a sort of more deep seated optimism in that if you can wrench the positives out of quote-unquote negative emotions like longing or that feeling that can feel more difficult absolutely like I always think of myself as a happy melancholic because like (laughs) (laughs) because I'm like yeah I'm just simultaneously sort of tuned into these melancholy things of like the fact that you know everything must pass everything must die like things like that but I'm also like deeply happy on a very like yeah in a very deep level and i do think that to tune into both and to accept both that that's where like a, a truer contentment comes from there's an anecdote you tell in the book where you in in bittersweet i should be clear we're talking about two books here but when you had split up from your partner of seven years, so the aforementioned scenario when you were 33, um, and you'd fallen headfirst in love with an unavailable musician, which <laughs> is a story I'm sure that many people listening to this can relate to in, in some way or another. But you had a very wise friend uh, who had quite like to steal from you, who said, <laughs> who said, look, if you're this obsessed with, with this person, or you, if you think you're this obsessed with a person, you can't be, there's not, you can't be that obsessed with a person, um, particularly someone you're dating. You know, it's, it's, it's more something that can inform you of a longing, a deeper longing that you have. And she sort of pointed you towards that. And, and for you, that, that became a really wonderful vehicle to realize, right. Well, you know, this person's a creative, this person's associated with words, this, this identified and, and thank God it did this, this need you had to, to write and, and to, be creative and to and to then you know go on and give all the gifts you have to the world through your writing um but you know do you think that talking about wrenching kind of constellations out of more difficult emotions and finding the positives in them do you think in the sort of state of, of singleness and dating and, and the chronic romantic longing that lives alongside that that really is your friend said can't necessarily just be about a person. Do you think it can actually help us learn more about ourselves, that feeling? I do. I do. Um, Yeah. So especially when you get into one of those situations where you become obsessed with someone in what you know to be an unhealthy way, and yet you cannot rest yourself from it, no matter what you do, at least to understand while you're in the throes of that obsession that that the person is probably just representing something that you really long for because nobody is sort of healthily obsessed with another person to that degree. So the obsession has something else in it. That's not only about the love of that person. It's it's about what that person represents. So understand, so figuring out what does that person represent and what's lacking in your life that, that your heart is telling you maybe erroneously would be filled by that person um, but maybe you could fill it some other way. Um, and then I would say more broadly, like to understand that for all, 
for all of us, like when we yearn for love and romantic love, it's the same. It's really just a different manifestation of this broader yearning that we all have for what I was calling before the, the perfect and beautiful world, you know, that for some people gets expressed in religious terms of a longing for the divine or heaven or Eden or whatever it is. Um, but I'd say that the best of human nature is encapsulated in, in that longing. And I know that when you're like, especially in your twenties and thirties and you're like going from date to date and relationship to relationship and you can't quite figure it out, it doesn't feel like it's a manifestation of some higher calling or higher yearning, but that that is part of what it is. And I, I think it can be useful to understand it that way. And so like if you're going through a state where you're feeling, I don't know, sort of emotionally beat up by not being able to figure out your relationships, at least to understand this is part of a, a kind of grander human yearning that you are meant to feel and that you're meant to enact. It must be almost to reframe this and to, to live in this um, new, slightly upside down world that where, where we're, we're celebrating these bittersweet emotions. But it's almost sad to then go into a state where you don't have that romantic longing because it's one of the most powerful impulses well, in the world, we're culturally conditioned to, to put romantic love on such a pedestal. So it reminds me of, yeah, when you watch a sort of, or, you know, when you watch an old movie as well, and it's also romantic yeah. and lovely, and you'll look back and, you know, there'll sort of be teenage heartthrobs or something, and you think, oh, I could never feel that strength of, um, strength of feeling, um, ever again. But I'm thinking actually particularly about, uh, the film Splendor in the Grass. Um, oh, are you familiar? You no, know, I never saw it. No. Oh, you know, I would, I would highly recommend it. It's so gorgeous. But the, the premise is, um, that you could never really replicate that, that strength of feeling that you will never really get back that obsession that you have as sort of first love. That's something that's gone. Uh, and I remember watching it with my best friend, perhaps, uh, it was, it was a while ago, but it felt quite mournful, you know, like when are we going to have that again? That mournful for that longing. No, I, I, I completely understand it. But yeah, I, I think it's rather that we're going to have it again, but maybe in different manifestations. You know, it's not going to be the, the same feeling that we had during teenage love, but it will take another form. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to keep this on the, on the relationships topic. I've sort of wrenched it over to, you know, you've been long married to your husband, Ken, who uh, you say very sweetly, is your, your extrovert pairing, your sort of, you know, sort of yin yeah. and yang, uh, introvert, extrovert pairing. Um, how is that as a tried and tested personality combination? Would you, would you recommend? Do you think we all need to be finding our other half as a introvert or extrovert to do as applicable? Oh gosh. I mean, I've seen it go both ways. I would say, um, well, there, there's also data on this that about half the relationships are people who have mated what's called assortatively, you know, with their own type. And then there are about half of them, people mate sort of across types. And I think there's pros and cons to both ways of being. Um, so one issue that Ken and I don't have, thankfully, he's like, he's super extroverted in the sense that, like, if he were in the room right now, you, you would really feel him. He's a very, very large um, personality. <laughs> but luckily, he doesn't actually 
I think he did more in his youth feel the need to constantly be going out, but he's not like that now. So we don't have that particular conflict, but a lot of introvert extrovert couples do have the conflict of like one person wants to be, you know, sitting home on Friday nights, curling up on the sofa, watching movies. And the other one would want to be having a big dinner party. Um, and, and that needs to get navigated. But the, I'd say the great side of introvert extrovert relationships is, um, there is this sense of a kind of constant mutual wonderment. Um, like I, I, I just can't even imagine what it would feel like or how anyone could be as animated as Ken is and like as full of things to say and like full of an external, like an outward facing life that he has. Um, I just, I can't imagine it and I love it and I find it a never ending sense of wonder at it. Um, and I, I think he probably feels some complimentary version of that with me, but it's just in a very different direction. You know, I, I, I think I pull him into a place that he wouldn't otherwise go uh, because of being the way I am. So I think that's the real beauty of relationships across type. But then I also see relationships between people of the same type where there's like a, a real sense of like a deep understanding of each other and, you know, of not having to negotiate differences of temperament, um, like just a, a deep sort of peas in a podness way of being. Mm. So I think there's a way to make either type work. That's interesting. And I think I didn't actually know there was data on that. So am I, am I right in thinking that means that so half, half of us pair with sort of, you know, introverts, extroverts, half of us pair with the same type as ours. It's not, there's not really a pattern. I mean, okay, so that's what the data says. And as I say, I, you know, just walking around the world, I definitely see both types. I will say that it feels to me just anecdotally as if there are more introvert-extrovert relationships than introvert-introvert or extrovert-extrovert. But that's purely just my own, you know, anecdotal impression. Mm. Uh, the studies that I've seen show that it's about half and half. I've sort of been doing an accidental social experiment where uh, I'm... I've been aware of my sort of Myers Briggs type um, uh -huh. ideal pairing. What's your type? Um, well, mine's a. I'm an ENFP, but my. Oh yeah, that makes total sense. <laughs> I'm an INFP. Are you an INFP? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so just two two sides of the same same coin. Um, Absolutely. But I, I've fallen into this thing where uh, it's not not been intentional, or it was maybe a couple of times, but it's happened too many times to be a coincidence. I end up dating a type an INTJ who's supposed to be my ideal personality type um, who's actually more towards the extreme end of introversion uh, and I mean you know the the data I, I, it's hard to say what's a success and what's not a success I certainly don't believe if something ends that means it wasn't a successful pairing or you know a nice thing to happen in your life but it is funny because I definitely that point that you say about the mystery is very interesting it's quite I don't know I imagine it's it's a long time being married right it's a long time when you if you do decide to commit to a long monogamous relationship so it, the idea sort of appeals of being with someone who's very very different in some regards that constant mystery forever yeah yeah though I must say I mean not to get like too deep in the Myers-Briggs weeds but I would have thought um that it would be very hard for a T and an F to be paired together 
because it, it seems like those are completely different sort of moral systems or like systems of what feels right in the world, whether you're a thinker or a feeler. Well, the jury is out, but I'd very much like to reference this conversation one day in my wedding speech and say Susan Cain was <laughs> right or Susan Cain was wrong as applicable. <laughs> you can let me know. <laughs> I think it's also, I have, I have realized that um, I don't know whether Myers-Briggs can necessarily dictate um, relationships. I don't actually, I'm not that aware of that being a thing, apart from I think there's one very small I I think possibly not still going dating app that does base things around Myers-Briggs but oh is that right there is yeah it's called so synced I wonder I don't know if it's still about but I do know that some very special friendships I've had have come as a result of sort of being similar or compatible types so I think that can be true perhaps just not your life partner I don't know well Um, it's funny you know all my uh like like hardcore research psychology friends, they all think that Myers-Briggs is ridiculous and not scientifically validated. Um, I must say, like, maybe they're right in terms of what the, what the testing says, but I, I just find it to be so useful in general that I still use it regardless of what they have to say. Okay. Um, so I have to ask, how about you and Ken? Are you the, are you compatible types? Well, <laughs> this is a crazy thing. In all this time, I don't think Ken has ever done Myers-Briggs, which is so crazy because when I first discovered Myers-Briggs, when I was like in my 20s, I think it was, I made every single friend that I had take it because I just found it so revelatory. I don't think he's ever done it though. Um, but I would say he's an E and something P. On the T and the F, I would say he's like <laughs> in the middle. So you've secretly diagnosed him. Yeah, yeah. You know, once you know someone. <laughs> well, and, and finally, so I was, uh, I was looking for a natural thread between a uh, quiet and bittersweet to sort of tie all this together. Um, and the comparison I've seen being made, um, by a lot of the press is that, uh, quiet was about sort of an underrated, you know, personality type or personality way of being. Um, and bittersweet is about underrated personality traits and emotions. Um, but I wonder if you'll let me have um, another hypothesis, because I wonder whether there's something inherently bittersweet about the time that we spend alone, given that we are born alone, we die alone, and that we can only ever really know the inside of our own heads. Is there something bittersweet that lies within that? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think that what you're talking about is something I, I wrote about in Bittersweet, sometimes called the pain of separation. And and the pain of separation talks about the fact that we will always have to separate from those who we love the most. And, you know, we come into this world experiencing the pain of separation from the womb, right? From our, from our mothers. So it's just the intrinsic human experience. Um, And people talking about it in religious terms would, would talk about the, the desire always to be reunited with the, the divine, like a, a feeling of being alone and being separated and not wishing to be. Um, so yeah, I, I do think there's something about that that's, <clears throat> excuse me, at the heart of bittersweetness, you know, the, the longing to connect. I think my favorite aphorism of all times is the one from E.M. Forrester, just those two words, only connect, only connect. Um, and I do think that that is the deepest human longing that perhaps as you're suggesting, can never be fully satisfied, but 
it's that's what heaven looks like to us. This has been a really gorgeous and really wide-ranging conversation. I'm so glad that we made the time for it. It's really, really nice to speak to yeah, you. Me too. Thank you so much for having me on and for doing the work that you do. It was just such a delight to get to talk to you. I mean, I don't know about you, but recording that episode was certainly a quasi-religious experience for me. And I really hope you enjoyed it just as much because, well, Susan was such a warm thoughtful speaker. She was every bit worth the wait to speak to. I really hope that you also got lots out of it. I feel like we covered so much. And actually, since recording and editing this episode, I I can't stop thinking about what Susan said about how romantic obsession can sort of steer us and indeed did steer her towards her cause that You know, it's never really about the other person. It's about identifying that deeper longing within you. I don't know, it just really stuck with me. I'd love to hear what you thought about this first episode of the season. You can let me know via social media or email. I'll leave the links in the show notes. If you'd like to stay in touch more generally, you can join my online community on Substack. Sign up with your email address at francescaspector.substack.com to receive regular newsletters containing my more personal writing. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.